Okay, the mics will be going out, and you can take questions on this morning. Sure, I said nothing controversial or challenging, so this will probably go quickly. <gasps> There's a blank that I didn't say? To be. Oh, it was... Um, to be measured. They're more easily measured. Quantified would work, too. Um, any other blanks questions? I mean, these are probably the least exciting questions, but we've got blanks questions. We can start there. But uh. Oh, we didn't get that far. We're going to pick up there. We only got through. We only really started four. Oh, okay. No, no, no worries. It's obedience and dependence, if you want to know. There you go. Um, okay. Any questions about what I actually said? Or the, or the text? <laughs> or what I didn't say? Yeah. Yeah. Jim. And I've had multiple people, I remember two or threes are multiple. Um, thank you all for being patient using the mics, but the people who do this, there's not many, but about 20 people a week listen to this, and they, they are, many of them have been repeatedly keep using the mics. Thank you. So hit it, Jim. It's more of a thought, but oh. I appreciate that your comment that uh, evangelism is not a cookie-cutter event, and that right. with the Reformed theology, we believe that it's God's sovereign uh, hand in the salvation of those who ultimately will believe the gospel. It takes a lot of pressure off a person who is evangelizing, sharing the gospel, when they realize that, oh, if I had just said the right thing, or um, I'm going to hammer them one more time. And I th I th you know well, what I mean? It just well, I think part of the way it works is most people are terrified of evangelism, and so giving them, giving them a method, giving them, you know, four spiritual laws or whatever, is giving them something to get them to talk. And that's good if it gets them from zero to something. The, the problem is you can get so dependent on this, this tool that then that's the only way you evangelize. And, and so whether it's the Romans Road, John 3.16, Acts 16, whatever, those are all great. And many principles and helpful tools have come out. I know a bunch of tools that are helpful. But what we, ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to talk to the person you need to deal with them. And that's what we see Jesus and the apostles doing. Um, and so you get different responses, right? So, so when the Ethiopian eunuch's reading this Isaiah scroll and he's got questions about it, Philip doesn't take him straight to the law. <laughs> you know, he deals with where he's at, with what he's understanding. And, you know, the Philippian jailer, they deal with him. And you need, are you willing to forsake everything? Guys, I was about to kill myself a minute ago. Yes. Like, they didn't go through their steps, right? Um, and so... I'm not saying that every time you got to just hammer them with the law, but clearly there are times like this when that's absolutely what the thing to do is. And so it's far more important for us to be observant who we're dealing with and ask for wisdom, I think ask questions, figure out where they're coming from, than simply pulling out your script and going through it because there is no New Testament script. There simply isn't. Um, so that, that was, yeah, that's one of the things is... Their tools are great. I mean, I know the Romans Road, and I know some other ones. Um, in fact, uh, I really like Ray Comfort's approach. He, he, 
going through the Ten Commandments, asking questions. Um, I'll mention this in next week's message, but in case you're wondering how, how might you do something like this, um, great comfort and the way of the master I like. Again, it's not the only way to do things. I think it's a good tool. I like it. But he'll ask people, um, have you ever lied? Yeah. What does that make you? And they'll pause. Human? <laughs> Normal? No, 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 no. Someone tells you a lie. What do you call them? Oh, a liar. <laughs> so you're a liar. Well, no, no, I'm not a liar. Well, you just said you've lied. Are you lying again? No. Well, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Like five and a bell sounds? Like, what is it? You know, and I'm being a little snarky. But, but you basically, most people will admit they lie, they lust, they, all these things. But they still somehow think they're good. And you're like, no, you're a liar. It's, I am too. It's okay. I'm not trying to, you know, um, have, you ever, have you ever stolen anything? No matter how small. Okay, you're a thief. Now you're a lying thief. You ever looked on someone with lust? Now you're a lying, thieving adulterer. You've been angry in your heart at your brother. Now you're an angry. Now you're a lying, thieving, angry, adulterous murderer. Okay. And and the point is because most people, if you ask them, they'll they'll admit they're most. I, I've never had a problem ever in evangelism getting someone to admit they've done wrong, but they still think at the end of the day their good deeds that way they're bad. They're good guys. And so it's just a tool. It's not the the only way, but it's it, it's a way to get someone by their own words without me telling them, condemning them. I'm asking them questions. It's Socratic in that sense. I mean, I, I've been out in the New York City streets before, and I was at Word of Life. We used to go out and do street evangelism. Um, they take us for groups in New York City. And halfway through, this guy just stops like, I'm going to hell. <laughs> Doesn't always happen. But, you know, it, it, the penny sort of drops. And so one of the things I was trying to get at is that clearly this guy doesn't think he's perfect. He wouldn't be asking the question, how do I get eternal life, if he thinks he merits it already. But a superficial treatment of this man would easily get him to say, yeah, I've done something wrong, I'm not perfect. And if that's all you're trying to get people to do in dealing with sin, then you just go right past this. And Jesus picking up on this, whether it's divinely, like the spirit leading him, or whether he simply could know enough by, by the halo data, I don't know whether Jesus in his humanity figured this out or whether it's divine insight, but Jesus knows that's what he has to do and he shows this guy where he's at and what he loves and what his God is and you know, and there are absolutely times you've got to do that as well. Because what's the clear implication? He, he can't have Jesus and his God of money too. Right? That's the clear implication. Um, it's an either or. If it's not an either or, then Jesus just did counter evangelism. I think something that <clears throat> is, is, is effective, for me anyway, is always like being a witness at a trial. You can, you can explain to people yeah. what God measurably has done for you. Of course, in the gospel, it's removing your sins, which is maybe a little difficult for an unbeliever mm. to see. But I heard something on a podcast just in the last couple of days. And the, and the, the question was, if one of the hosts of heaven who continually fly around the throne of our holy God came to earth, how would he evangelize? Would he, would he speak of infant baptism or, or, or any controversy? No, he would talk about the unbelievable holiness of the living God. 
And uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting, an interesting thing to consider. Right. And I think sometimes we, for me, I'll, I'll think about, oh, what's the pattern? What's this approach I should take? What should I say? And sometimes it's, it's got to be about the holiness of our God. Right. Well, yeah, if, 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 if you're, I think sometimes we're tempted in evangelism. We know the notion of God's holiness and God's anger and hell are kind of embarrassing and problematic. I don't think they actually ever really feel that way. And so we gloss over them very quickly. You're a sinner and you're headed to hell, but it's okay because God sent Jesus. And the, the person you're talking to by no means thinks God's holiness, God's wrath and hell are just or make sense. You know what I mean? And I really think you gotta get to the point where you recognize I deserve hell. Like you're agreeing with the judge. It would be right, good, and just of God to condemn me to hell for eternity. Which is a lot more than saying I've made a mistake. I, I, I tend to think that's where you need to get at. Otherwise, God... Yes. But it's our work to pause, show them what God's word says, give the Holy Spirit time, and ask questions. You know what I mean? You can ask questions, and I mean, even Jesus here, you know, or in chapter 10, what is, what's your reading of the law? I mean, it can be give and take and figure out what people are at. But don't pass over that. And so I, I've heard one guy trying to do evangelism training once. Don't call people sinners. Just tell them we're all in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, we're all in the sinking sinners to hell boat. Um, you know. Uh, so, so, and again, it gets back to the broken spirit and its right heart. These are the sacrifices of God. And the law and the spirit, taking the law, is meant to break the heart, bring us to a place of contrition where we cry out like the tax collector, have mercy on me. And then there's free grace, and there's abundant mercy and grace. But as long as we think, I'm a good guy who makes mistakes, I think you get the law. I, I think that's where, where it goes to. Um, yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Oh, Don Carpenter. I got some more quotes from in here, too. But. I guess I'd always thought that um, with that rich young ruler figured it out. Um, obviously, I'm wrong, but but when you get down... Maybe later he did. Where it's easier for, for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Um, and he said, but what is impossible with God? What is impossible with man is impossible with God? It's, it's entirely possible. But no, it's entirely possible. Some people, I think this is a stretch, some people have even suggested this is the Apostle Paul. It theoretically is possible. Um, no, the rich young ruler is Paul, prior to his conversion. We're told in the parallel account of Matthew, he went away sad. So he didn't fall. At this moment in time, at this encounter, he does not decide to follow Jesus. What he does later, we don't know. Could he, like Nicodemus, come around? Nicodemus gets three appearances in John's gospel, and he starts out as an unbeliever, then he's defending Jesus, and then he's actually a believer. So, yeah, we can hope this is not the end of the rich young ruler story. But as far as it goes here, he's a picture of someone rejecting Christ, which is why Jesus, I mean, this is kind of cold in a sense. The guy's still there, and Jesus starts talking about him. <laughs> the guy's sad. Jesus sees he's sad. This is how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. I mean, the guy's still there. 
But he's not letting up on bringing conviction. Like, while you view yourself in this way, while you view yourself in the God's commandments this way, you're under judgment. And Jesus, in love, isn't going to let up. This is a pitiable person. I mean, he's speaking a lamentation or a woe about this guy in front of him. And I don't think he's being a jerk. It's just, <laughs> we'll see this next week. Like, you just said no to the Son of God because you wanted money. But how many people today make that same choice? Exact same choice. Oh, yeah. We are the richest people in the history of the world. The richest people in the richest country, the richest, and we just don't think we're rich because the guy down the street has a bigger house. Um, yeah. We, you realize leisure time wasn't even a thing until the Industrial Revolution. Um, anyway, anyway, sorry, that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Now, let me, let me read another quote from this, this little book. We've got two copies in the bookstore. It's 10 bucks. It's fantastic. He's got some just great quotes. Wow, that isn't a word. Quotes. He's got a great quote. <laughs> um, by insisting the wealthy youth sell he, what he had been given to the poor, the Lord was pointing out the particular sin of covetousness in his heart. It was not an arbitrary test by which the ruler could measure the... But it was not an arbitrary test by which the ruler could measure the depth of his greed. It was also an essential demand to the gospel that he forsake his wealth. He must turn his back on his green God and have heavenly treasure. This is the heart of repentance. The New Testament word translated repentance means a change of mind. To be saved, the covetous man must turn from or change his mind about his wealth and money. Salvation would elude the successful youth who went to Jesus unless he fundamentally changed his mind. And what's also heartbreaking is in Mark, he runs up to Jesus. I mean, we get all this eagerness, and that's Mark adds in he's young, and he's, um, I think, even a ruler of synagogue there, maybe. But um, the rich young ruler. But I mean, this is, is tragic. And we can hope and pray that, I don't know if we can pray, it's kind of a done deal, but we can hope this isn't the end of his story. I mean, Luke's including this to make the point of God exalting the humble and casting down the pride, which is actually where Luke's gospel begins. If you remember the Magnificat with Mary? That's all she's singing about. She's taken this humble maiden and exalted her, and he's casted down the proud. Casted. Cast. I'm making up all types of words this morning. He has cast down the proud. And so this is one of those reversals. Babies get welcomed. The rich young ruler goes away. And that's what Luke's setting up here. But the other good news is look at chapter 19. What's it begin with? Zacchaeus. Not all rich people go to hell. We're going to see it being possible. So Jesus does say it's impossible. And then we're going to see a picture of it being possible. With God, all things are possible. And here's Zacchaeus. We'll see the right response in a few weeks with money. But let me, let me make one other point that I'll make again next week. In case you think Jesus' demand was only a test, not to be taken seriously, let's see what he says. Look at how the disciples respond, right? So after the whole, then who can be saved? Peter comes up to him um, and says to him in verse 28, see, we have left our homes and followed you. We've forsaken everything and followed you. To which Jesus does not say, oh, you took that seriously? That was just a test. No, he says to them, in effect, and you're not gonna get ripped off. You're gonna get paid. The check's gonna get cut. You're gonna 
You're not going to regret that decision. He says to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the disciples absolutely took it literally, and Jesus commends them for it. And it's just, I mean, turn back to 14. Again, time escaped us this morning, but we'll, you're getting basically overflow from this morning and previews for next week. But, I mean, we went through this laboriously, I'm sure some of you thought slowly, when we went through Luke 14, but the cost of discipleship in 25, there's nothing Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler he didn't say to everyone in Luke 14. And worse, Verse, chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. This is just a general speech to the crowd. If anyone, right, so this is doubly general. This isn't just some subgroup. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, which is what he said to the rich young ruler, follow me follow after me, cannot be my disciple. Then he talks about counting the cost and jump down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So it's simply an application to the rich young ruler. If you want to be my disciple, you've renounced all that you have, so go sell it. Give to the poor, come follow me. So there's nothing in this demand to the rich young ruler that's new or unique. It's just particular in its application to one individual and his response. But there's nothing Jesus hasn't said broadly and generally to everyone. We saw in back in 12 where he told them, all of them, little sheep, do not be afraid. It's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your positions. Provide for yourself purses in heaven which do not grow up, which is very similar, he says, to the rich young ruler. Right? Provide treasure in heaven. So it, there's, there's nothing new here. We're just seeing a particular instance in a particular individual in a particular encounter with Jesus. But but what, what's going on here is nothing new when what Jesus is demanding and requiring and, and insisting on from him. So, um, yes. Um, it talk, you know, Jesus knew what was coming. He, somehow he knew the future, somehow. It doesn't, I don't yes. call where it talks Jesus or angels actually came to him. But did he also have like a, does it talk about the Bible of having like a sixth sense where he could, he could read People a little bit different, like know, yeah. he knew actually, where they were at in their belief. and Actually, well, yeah, that's a complicated question. Turn back to chapter 2. The most direct place in Luke is this. We know that Jesus was not at all times functionally omniscient. What I mean by functionally omniscient was he wasn't operating in omniscience. He was not knowing all things at all times. Because in Luke 2, we're told this twice. In Luke 2, um, verse 40... The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. And then in 52, this is, and this is the, the, the two statements that cap, the literary name for this is inclusio. It's like a bookend. It lets you know you're dealing with the unit and also lets you know the main theme in the unit. The main theme here is Jesus learning. Jesus growing in wisdom. He's sitting in the temple studying for three days with the rabbis and we're meant to understand here's Jesus learning stuff. 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. Later on, a woman touches Jesus. He says, who touched me? And I don't think it's theater. He doesn't. Now, there are times where the Holy Spirit, because he has the Holy Spirit, and he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. So even the miracles Jesus is doing in Luke's gospel, that's in chapter 5, 
um, where he returned in the power of the Spirit and, and the Spirit of God was coming out on him. Well, 4 and 5. So 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So all the miracles he's doing, all the power we see, I think Luke wants us to understand, is not Jesus exercising his own divine power, but reliance upon the Spirit and the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is not using cheats that we don't get. We get the Spirit. Jesus is not getting secret knowledge that we don't get. He's living as us, not using any cheat codes, as it were. And so there are times where God seems to reveal things to him. But there are other times where Jesus doesn't know what's going on. So either the Holy Spirit reveals to God something he needs, reveals to Jesus something he needs to know. Otherwise, Jesus is gaining wisdom like you and me and operating on a human intellect like you and me. That's my understanding in Luke. So there are times where we're told he knew things. We are t there are times we're told he knows things he couldn't possibly know, like when he says to Nathaniel, I saw you before you were sitting under the, before I met you, before you were under the tree. But I would understand that as, okay, so God the Father revealed to Jesus through the Holy Spirit this, because this was something Jesus needed to know for his mission. That's also why we don't really get any of Jesus doing anything uh, except for the account in the temple prior to his baptism. Because prior to the receipt of the Holy Spirit, Jesus isn't working miracles and doing things. So um, that's a convoluted answer. But that, that, so yes, there are times where through the Holy Spirit, but, it's not, but Jesus doesn't have some secret knack for knowing things that you and I can't have. Yeah. From the Holy Spirit is how he would maybe get readings on different people. And, and, we, and we see the same thing with other prophets. So like Elijah, Naaman comes to Elijah, offers to pay him. Elijah won't receive it, doesn't even meet with him, sends him to the river. But then Elijah's servant goes and says, my master changed his mind, and he gets the clothes. And Elijah calls him out on it because God showed it to him. So there's, Jesus isn't doing anything fundamentally different than um, even prophets in the Old Testament are doing. So, so that's... Jesus really lived our life for us, and it's not as though, because sometimes we're tempted to think like Superman walking around with the thunderous shirt. Well, yeah, I know he was tempted, and yeah, I know he was, but he's God. You know, none of the shirts, do, do, do. No, he's tired, and he's asleep, and he's weary, and he doesn't know things. He really became like us, um, and not in any way compromising his deity, which is why you got to find tricky ways of saying things like he wasn't functionally omniscient. He didn't lose omniscience, but he wasn't operating in it. The example I came up with is a stupid example, but it's kind of like having the car with all the bells and whistles, and you could have a switch that turned that off. Your car still has all those bells and whistles. You're just not using the power steering. You're just not using the four-wheel drive. I think it's something like that. Um, that's, I mean, I'm sure that could be a better analogy. Microphone for Naomi. I was just kind of curious. Um, you know, we talk about evangelism, and we evangelize to people, and there's no necessarily right way to evangelize to someone. But I was wondering if you had thoughts on um, when to stop evangelizing with someone. Like, because I have friends who, you know, I might have mentioned God to them. They know I'm a Christian. Hmm. And then if I talk about it in any way or what my opinion is on it, something that... Um, aligns with my spiritual worldview, then suddenly I'm preaching to them or right. like, oh, Pastor Naomi. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. that's not what yeah. I was trying to do. I was just trying to like share yeah. that what my opinion is mm -hmm. versus what your opinion is. And um, I have a friend in particular that I'm thinking of who um, previously claimed to be Christian but like didn't um, live in any way under uh, Christ's you know, in, in a Christ-likeness, and 
I didn't really point that out because I do get afraid of pushback, but I'm wondering when is it okay? Do I have to push it at them until they like push me away completely? Or when is it okay to stop and just let them be? Because she's recently decided, okay, religion isn't for her, but I don't well, know. I think, uh, let me answer that along two lines. Absolutely, we're told not to throw our pearls before swine. We have examples of Paul in Acts wiping the dust off his feet and saying, since you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. Um, but on the other hand, I'd want to make sure that I, I believed I'd communicated the urgency. Um, if you thought somebody had the early morning signs of cancer and you wanted them to go to a doctor, get checked out, um, you'd want to communicate the urgency of that. You'd, you'd want to communicate the direness of it. No, 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 it's just a rash. No, no, I, you need to get that checked out. I, I've seen this, I know this, you need to go now while it's treatable. I'd want, if, if you've communicated that, they don't just think, like, well, we have different approaches. Like, do they think Naomi is scared that I'm going to perish in hell? If you've communicated that, I think your conscience is clean. To quote Paul, their blood's not on your head. And when Paul says that, he's referencing Ezekiel, or God commissions Ezekiel and says to him, if you go warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he doesn't listen, he will perish, but you will be innocent of his blood. So there's a sense of, like, have you faithfully done that? Okay, then. Now you can look for opportunities, not be a jerk, season your wrist with salt. If you can bring something back up, go there. But I'd want to make sure it was more than just... No, Naomi believes these things about Jesus, and I don't, and we, we agree to disagree, and it's okay. I, I'd hope that they, I, I think of someone about to get sentenced to hell. If I'm there, they look at me like, why didn't you communicate to me? Is this dire and urgent? If you've done that, if they get it, like this is for real and this is serious, and you're, you're headed for hell, I believe that. You're going to spend hell in eternity. However you want to communicate that, however many conversations that takes, I think you're good. Um, and we've got New Testament warrant for Paul saying, okay, going somewhere else. So the challenge is that in, in my experience, most of your friends who don't want to talk about it want you and press you to try to inadvertently validate them or other people. And that's the trick. You know, they'll say something, they, like, they'll know what I believe. Like, well, they're in a better place, right? <sighs> okay. Okay, you brought it up. Fair. You want to know what I think? I'm going to tell you what I think. No, I don't think they're in a better place. You know? Um, how could you say that? You know what I believe. What do you mean, how could I say that? Um, so that's, that's the trick, is now being friends with them without validating them and making them feel like you're approving of what they're doing. You know, there should be, a, basically, I think it's healthy for your unbelieving friends you've talked to who reject the gospel, for there to be a measure of sorrow in all of your interaction with them. You're talking to a perishing person. You're, per, you're talking to somebody on the Titanic who's refusing to get off in the lifeboat. You know what I mean? Um, but, okay, that's, I'm, I'm, bad. I'm going on long-windedly, but at the end of the day, if you've communicated the gospel clearly and you've appealed to them, their, their blood's not on your head. Yes? So how does that not come across as judgment? Oh, it is judgment. You're not judging them. You're announcing judgment. It, it, it's but like, if I don't stop until I'm convinced or if I'm telling them, you're damned, you're going to hell, yeah. you know, I, I'm making that judgment that, I'm judging them, and I'm not supposed to judge. Okay. Um, let's talk about judgment for a minute. Pause for a moment. Um, you're not judging by relating news. You're, you're heralding. The word we get for preach means herald, announce. So the mailman isn't judging you when he gives you a summons to court. 
That mailman isn't judging you when he gives you an eviction notice, right? He's delivering the news. So yeah, if we sound like we're judging them, you wicked, bad sinner, you, and I'm judging them. But if I tell them, look, I believe the Bible is the word of God. The Bible says that you and all other men are headed for hell. Whatever I'm doing, I'm not judging them. I'm relating news. They may not want to hear it. They may say, I don't want to don't talk that to me. But I don't think they can accuse you of judging them because you're not judging unless you're acting like the judge. Go to, go to James chapter 3 or 4. Four. 4. Thank you, Mitchell. It is written somewhere. There's literally an introduction of a scripture quotation in Hebrews that starts that way. So, um, as I reminded Pastor Daniel... Paul says finally twice in Philippians. I'll be like, oh, one more thing. Like, that's the fifth one more thing. I'm like, okay, finally. Okay, let me get there. Um, we have lots of fun in the office. Uh, here we go, James 4. Okay. Um, verse 11. Judging, this is to give us an insight into judging and what the New Testament means by judging and not judging. And if you look in our podcast, or going, I did a whole message on judging back when we did um, uh, the Sermon on the Plain, I think, right afterwards. But verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Don't talk like you're the judge. Basically is what I would say to avoid being judgmental. Don't, don't talk as though you're the judge. Don't talk with scorn as if somehow, remember, treating people with contempt. Are you, when you announce the judgment, are you talking like you're better than them and you're looking down on them? And I think we could. I mean, there may be some sins we tend, to, we tend to be respecters of sins, like, oh, you struggle with that sin, that's nasty. And if you're communicating that, yeah, shame on you. You're talking like a judge. You're talking like the Pharisee who treats other people with contempt. But if you're just announcing, hey, this is what God says. You're not judging people. You're saying, you're announcing that God is judging people, which is different. Does that distinction make sense at all? So you can, I think you absolutely, and people may not like it, and they may tell you you're being judgmental. But if you're just saying, look, let me tell you what the Bible says, because I think it's true. <laughs> this is what it says. And you're doing it in a humble way. You're not judging anybody. Um, you're not judging anybody. Even though because the culture today, judge not, they'll accuse you anyway. But for your own conscience, you haven't judged anybody when you do that. Um, anyone want to bounce off that, say anything to that effect on judging? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, even though I'm not going to like the answer. But in the Bible, it talks about wicked men that aren't believers. But then there's believers. So is the sin the same of a believer that's sinning and a wicked man that isn't a believer? No, the believer sins way worse. Way worse, okay, because oh, he knows, because he's a believer. We he know knows. better. We know better. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we know. Oh, sorry. The question was, is the sin of an unbelieving wicked man and the sin of a believer the same? No. The believer's is way worse. To whom much is given, much is accountable. And to us who claim to have seen the light, to us who claim to have received God's word, to us who claim to know what is true, <laughs> and have the Holy Spirit, and then, oh, way worse. Well, we get a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> is, 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 the, does, does the grace of, will the grace of God be on oh, both of them? 
Oh, oh there's, the gospel can redeem, can redeem that. Oh, absolutely. I'm just saying, which one I think offends God more? Oh, the sin of... I think John, John MacArthur made this helpful point. Um, most people... Most people will recognize the sin in their sin. By that I mean they steal something. They, they, they swear, they get drunk, whatever. Most people, even the rank pagan, will recognize, yeah, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that to them, whatever. Most people recognize the sin in their sin. Some people will recognize the sin in their good deeds. Yeah, I just did that to impress the girl. Yeah, I just did that for the tax write-off. Not many people. Few people recognize the sin in their religion. And if you look at Jesus, what's he most angry at? False religion and religious self-righteousness. Next, people's pride in their good deeds. And not that he's tolerant of it looks the other way, but who gets the least amount of blasting? The sinners and the tax collectors. So in God's estimation, from what we can understand of what provokes and offends God, it's the exact opposite. Religious sin, moralistic sin, you know, other sin. So, so go, to, go to 1 Corinthians 5, um, where we see the distinction and the difference. This gets down to part of the basis for church discipline and dealing with sin in the body is we are not to be judging those in the world. And, and part of this, um, Colleen, is judging would also involve treating someone differently, interacting with them differently. Um, so Paul's going to rebuke the church at Corinth they haven't judged a member in the body who's having an ongoing affair with a stepmom. So he wants them to break fellowship with that person. He wants them to, to kick that person out of the body because of his unrepentant, consistent, ongoing sin. But he's going to tell them, I don't want you doing that with the world because God's going to judge the world. So again, there's a difference. When we're, so if I go to a believer and I say, hey, man, what you just said, what you said, that's not right. Don't judge me. Again, I hopefully making it clear like, Dad said we shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, I, and my kids, I watch them. There are times where my kids sound like the judge, and there are times my kids sound like heralds. Mom said you weren't supposed to play with that. <laughs> yeah, that's not, stop judging me. No, no, I'm just, I'm just passing on a message, man. But I saw her get the spanking thing, you know. Um, so you might want to pay, <laughs> just heads up. Heads, no, and, and really in church, and no, and really with church discipline, that's what we're saying, because God disciplines those whom he loves. So you, maybe you'll listen to our discipline, but if you're his, you're getting disciplined. And this will be better than that. So we'd, we'd love, it's a little embarrassing, it's a little humbling, because I've got to come talk to you. But trust me, this is better than what dad's going to do to you if you're his kid, and this doesn't happen. Because 1 Corinthians 5 um, we get the description of it in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? See, this church is too tolerant, and they get rebuked for being too tolerant. They're too welcoming. They're too inclusive. They're too nonjudgmental. And Paul lights them up about it. Um, now jump down. He's going to talk for a bit about discipline of the body. This boasting is not good. Um, but look, okay, so then here's the judgment, verse 3, for this particular guy. Um, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There's Paul pronouncing judgment. When you assemble in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord 
um, Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and ultimately not that this guy perishes and goes to hell, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is why it's a severe mercy. We're not doing this because we hate the guy and get out of here and go to hell. It's maybe, just maybe, getting battered and beaten around in the world without the protection of God and his people. Maybe God will use that to bring you to your senses and come to repentance. And then, jump down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So there's the difference between the sin in the church, sin out of the church. You want, to go hop, you want to go talk to and fellowship and interact with drunkards and adulterers and fornicators of the world? Well, as long as you're keeping your conduct pure and your word seasoned with salt, go for it. Paul's not telling us to break fellowship with worldly sinners. Um, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of this world. But now I am, that's like the anti-monastic verse because <laughs> the monks were like, no, we're going to go out of the world. We're just going to get away from all the wickedness and go in the monastery somewhere. Um, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Clear implication, I got nothing to do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. That's the logic. These people are to stand before God's judgment, so you don't need to add to that. We are the ones who've escaped God's judgment, and then God authorizes us with his authority to execute a biblical judgment with scripture, and that's the warrant for that. Go to, go to 1 Peter. Same points made in 1 Peter. The same logic of the difference. This is all following up on Mike's question about is the belief, sin of a believer and an unbeliever the same? No. Um, they get dealt with differently. We, we don't, we don't um, throw rocks at the world. We witness to the world. Um, we do deal with sin in the body. So in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, um, hold on, where is it? Give me a second. If you call on him his father who judges the world, come on, Mitchell. 17. 17. You're not Mitchell. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, 1 Peter 1, 7, 1 Peter 1, 17. I get the logic of this, okay? Um, actually, go back a, a verse or two further. Um, verse 15. Oh, 13. So here's the call. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So wake up, be focused, look into the goal. Jesus is returning. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Now here's the argument from the lesser to the greater. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here's the logic. You and I call daddy the one who's going to send most of the world to hell. You better take that seriously. And so the point, it'd be almost like walking up to somebody who, like, their parents, a Supreme Court justice or a, a judge sentencing people to death, and the kid's mouthing off to their father. Like, Do you understand who your dad is? <laughs> Most of the rest of us live in fear of your father because he can sentence us. You're his kid. You better not take that lightly. That's the logic. If you call on him as, if we have the audacity to say that the judge of the universe is our father, 
and given us his spirit, and we're his children. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you are not ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers but with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot. And then in chapter 4, he picks up the same theme again. Let me find it. There it is, 17. Well, you've got to go back to 12. Suffering as a Christian, because the first Peter is all about suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. If, if you've got it easy, if you're not suffering, if you're not being persecuted, that's the strange thing. That's the unusual thing. Don't, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So first he's talking about righteous suffering. If you're suffering righteously, rejoice. Don't be surprised. Don't, don't, don't be chagrined. Don't be, why is this happening? You're identifying with Christ. Now he's going to turn to unrighteous suffering. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in, his, in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, there again is the logic. It starts with us, but it's going to end with them. And how much worse will it be for them? It's, it's, it's a difference. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we know much more. We're accountable for much more. And no, we're not endangering. We're not, God's not going to punish us with wrath in hell, but our sin is the worst. Because we know better. Um, our sin is the worst because we know better. The, the uh, where is it? Hold on, hold on. The servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it got far greater beating than the servant who didn't know his master's will. That's, that's the logic. And we're the servant who knows his master's will. So, yeah, it's far uglier. It, I mean, think about how, how the culture mocks Christ because of people who name his name who do terrible things, like Westboro Baptist and stuff. Think how much shame is heaped upon the name of Christ in a way that, you know, pagans just being pagans doesn't, right? I mean, they're, oh, look, the Canaanites are acting like Canaanites. Woo! What did you expect they were going to do? Okay, who's next? Oh, Lee, Lee, then Linda. Lee, then Linda. Okay, he watched. Here we go. Well, and that's why I appreciate Martinsdale Church because they don't, our elders don't let you just slide around in sin. And even if it's not like widespread, widely known, but you know it <laughs> anyway. And also I give a tip of my hat to my dad because he did one of the hardest things he ever had to do and come and confront me and Don about our drinking. And it was really hard for him to do. And of course, I immediately I knew I was guilty. It's like, duh. And he, that kind of started the, the rolling of our getting clean and getting right with the Lord. And um, it's serious. You're right. God hates Christians going around, you know, wanting to do what we want to do. And he didn't do it because he was trying to judge you. He did it because no, he loved you. It was hard, and he loved us. And he was, said it was one of the hardest things he ever did. And yeah. I thank him, and I'll always give my dad credit for that. Plus our elders, they totally backed him up and backed us up. So, yeah. Yeah. 
He who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his lips. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. My head not refuse it. Yeah, but it's hard stuff. Yeah. So there's a way to do it that's judgmental. There's a way to do it that is the most loving thing you can do. Yeah. Um, my, the people who love me most are the ones who come and, and talk about my sin. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. That's pretty heavy, and now we're out of time. Oh, we have, oh, Linda, you bring us home, Linda. Bring us home. (laughs) No, I don't really have a question. I just, all morning since you've been talking about this, I just keep feeling and thinking about, like, the word of faith and the prosperity gospel people. I mean, they're basically doing exactly the opposite of this. They're teaching people to covet because they're saying that God wants you to be rich. He wants you to have a Mercedes. He wants you to have a yacht. He wants that's the total opposite of this. And they're they're not only just preaching a false gospel, but they're leading people into sin. Yeah. No, absolutely. They're presenting as as a goal an idol. All in the name of God, though. That's what? <laughs> I see. Um, well, no, the, the, no the, the Word of Faith movement does it, and then the Prosperity Gospel does it. There's also another movement, um, the, the Free Grace movement, which really struggles with, with this stuff. Um, but we can talk more about that next week. Um, anyway, sure, if you're interested, Chantry's book is awesome, and it's short. What? Colin, I said, "Oh, sure, I'll be gone next week." Oh, sorry. We can talk afterwards. We can talk afterwards. God bless you guys. We're dismissed. <laughs>